Welcome to SignalCast, a podcast from Texas Signal. In our first segment this week, Signal reporter Fernando Ramirez talks to Antonio Ariano, who is currently leading Jolt Action, a civic engagement organization for Latino progressives in Texas. Then Fernando speaks with Kirsten Myers, the Area Director for Refugee Services of Texas, about the mission of the organization, the misconceptions about refugees, and Governor Abbott's rejection of refugee resettlement in Texas. And finally, an all-new segment called Housekeeping, where we will focus on a Texas State House district targeted for Democratic pickup every week. Today we're talking to Antonio Arellano, who is currently leading Jolt Action, a civic engagement organization for Latino progressives in Texas. Thanks so much for joining us, Antonio. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So 2020 is here, the big year. Texas is a battleground state. What are your plans to beat Trump here? What's the strategy? You know, there's incredible momentum in Texas and progressive momentum at that. But we recognize that Jolt that in order to really transform Texas, it's gonna require us to build an infrastructure as big as the state to mobilize the key constituency that is young Latino voters. And of course, what role have these Latino voters already played in transforming Texas's cultural and political dynamics over the years? Well, you know, I think that's a really interesting question. You know, I think that you can't think of Texas without thinking about Tejano music and Tex-Mex food, right? Latino culture has really shaped the way the Lone Star State operates and is depicted nationwide and even globally. You know, our contributions economically are also incredibly substantial. But politically, we've struggled to really make substantial change. And that's not the fault of Latinos. It's truly the fault of the lack of infrastructure in the state. Our communities have historically been underrepresented and not prioritized, and we want to change that. At Jolt, we don't do just voter registration campaigns. We do culture-shifting campaigns, like our Poder Quince program that is the first in the nation to do voter registration at quinceañeras. We are tapping into the Latino culture and harnessing the power of Latino culture to create a new tradition of civic engagement, and that's how you transform the Lone Star State. Gotcha. And what about in the future? Is the Latino vote expected to be even more significant in the coming years? Listen, every 30 seconds, a Latino in the United States turns 18. In Texas, we know that one out of every five Latinos in the nation calls this state their home. So we know that we are ground zero for mobilizing this key group, and we plan to do just that. And in the recent years, we've seen great strides already being made. You know, in 2018, we saw a 250% increase among Latinos during early voting and a 500% increase among young voters during early voting. There is clear and undeniable momentum, and we need an unprecedented investment to take advantage of this increased enthusiasm across the state. And because uh, Latinos are such a key vote, there's just so much stuff being written about them. I, I always see the term, you know, the sleeping beast. What's the number one misconception when it comes to the Latino vote? Well, I think it's just that. I think that the misconception is that we're asleep. We're not asleep. We're completely um, awake. And, and, you know, one another element is that I've grown up historically hearing that in the future, Latinos will be a force to be reckoned with, and that in the future, the Latino vote is going to be unstoppable. Well, Jolt, what we're here to say is the future has arrived, and this is the moment that we're going to really activate our base. And it's because our community is under attack. 
you know, but we have the capacity in this year, in this election cycle, to flip the Texas House. You know, we won 12 seats in 2018, and we're only nine seats away from making that historic transition. We can break the supermajority in this Texas Senate, we can expand the Texas congressional delegation, and we can finally take out John Cornyn, who does not represent the values of the state, and finally give authentic representation to Texas. And so much of that depends on that youth vote, uh, which a lot of Jolt Action's work specifically focuses on. But what's the challenge here? It's it's not always easy to get young people involved in politics. Yeah, and I think that partly the fault here is the states. You know, we are one of the only states in the country that does not offer online voter registration, and it's 2020. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous when you're trying to mobilize a digital generation into action, but you're not providing them with the access to the ballot box that they require. You know, I think that our strategy is, A, to protect the vote. We want to make sure that everybody's voices are heard and that there's nothing impeding that, right? And that we are clear about voter suppression tactics that we know will be increased as communities of color make their way to the polls. Expanding the vote. That means, you know, mobilizing the uh, progressive side of Texas politics hasn't won us anything in the in, in the past 40 years statewide. And so it's gonna require an expansion of that vote, bringing in people that have never voted before or are likely not to vote. That's why when Jolt goes door to door block walking and canvassing, we specifically focus on low propensity Latino voters, people that the political strategists tell us to not even bother with, that they don't come out, that they won't vote. That's the houses that we are enthusiastic about knocking on. And we don't just parachute and do voter registration, ask you if you're registered to vote or not, and then leave. We take a moment and say, do you know that in the next three years, you're going to be the majority of the population of this state? And a lot of them tell us, no, I'm not aware because they can't see themselves reflected in the governor's mansion, they can't see themselves reflected in the policy coming out of the legislative body, they can't see themselves reflected in the congressional delegation that goes to DC. And what we try to do through JOLT is infuse art and culture so that through our material, our messaging, we are empowering this community so that they can see themselves reflected in politics and as a result become more engaged. Absolutely. Now, I wanted to talk about Iowa, which, as we all know, has been in the news cycle recently uh, because of the primary. And before and after dropping out of the presidential race, Obama-era housing chief Julian Castro was fighting to give states like Texas a leading role in the primary process, since Iowa and New Hampshire are majority white and can influence what candidates are perceived as electable. Do you agree with Castro's calls for reforms in the primary process? I think Secretary Castro put forward some of the most visionary and um, realistic proposals in regards to truly making our democracy representative of its uh, population. And, you know, in 2016, Texas performed better than traditional battlegrounds like Iowa and Ohio. In 2018, we saw Democrats come within 2.6% of flipping the state for the first time in 40 years. And new polls indicate that Texas is in play for the 2020 presidential election. Between 2014 and 2018, the Texas voter roll grew by 1.8 million voters. And the majority of these voters are women and people of color. And 60% of them are under the age of 35. So Texas is the population in Texas is truly representative of what the nation will soon look like. So if you want to actually put forward candidates that represent the nation, you've got to start investing and prioritizing Texas voices. We're not just the biggest state in the country, we're one of the most powerful. And we need to recognize that come Super Tuesday, we're, we're one of the biggest prizes on Super Tuesday. With 38 electoral votes, with 36 congressional seats, we cannot just transform Texas, but we can transform this country. 
I also wanted to ask you about Governor Greg Abbott's decision to block refugees from being resettled in Texas. What was your reaction when you first heard about his decision? Governor Greg Abbott has shown to be such a coward um, by trying to criminalize and reject refugees and immigrants. I think that it's a truly, uh, it's an embarrassment to our state that we have opted to target refugees as outsiders instead of embracing them. You know, America made a promise, and that promise is uh, that this country is a beacon of hope, that this country accepts asylum seekers and refugees uh, fleeing violence. And, and, and when our governor refuses to recognize that, it minimizes our power. It shrinks our power. And Texas deserves better. And obviously a lot of this has to do with President Trump himself, who his rhetoric has inspired violence against Latinos and immigrants, most notably the white nationalist mass shooting in El Paso in Texas last year. How should Texans as well as immigrants and Latino communities respond to this growing concern? You know, at Jolt, we tell our members, the reason that you see our community being targeted, the reason we are under attack and being depicted as criminals, and the reason that they're trying to dehumanize us is because you are powerful. You are the biggest threat to the status quo. You know, the birds pick at the best fruit. We have in our hands the potential to not just define and decide the next presidential election, but begin to replace these discriminatory and racist politicians from every single position of power, from city council all the way to the White House. And at Jolt, we don't harness on the negative. We allow them to spew their hate. We focus on the potential and the power that young Latinos have to create change. And we can't be distracted um, or intimidated by these um, uh, attacks. We need to be empowered and, and recognize that we have in our hands the potential to transform the state and make history. You know, we seldomly realize history when it's happening. It's not until decades later that we look back and we say, whoa, what was that? That was historic. What's happening right now in this state, what's happening right now in this country is absolutely of historic proportions. And we need to make sure that we have candidates and representatives who are ready to meet that moment of urgency. Absolutely. Antonio, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Kirsten, thanks so much for joining us today on the SignalCast. I really appreciate you, Tam, uh, you taking the time to be here today. Can you explain what the Refugee Services of Texas is, who you are, and what y'all do? Yes, definitely. Thank you for having me here also. Um, my name is Kirsten Myers, and I'm the Area Director for Refugee Services of Texas Houston. So we do have six offices uh, statewide, uh, Refugee Services of Texas, where we provide services to refugees, asylees, survivors of trafficking, unaccompanied minors, and more. Um, here in Houston, we work with the Houston Consortium. So there are uh, four other refugee resettlement agencies as well, where um, specifically, you know, refugee is in our name um, of the organization, where we help refugees arrive to the United States and um, integrate into the community and uh, get them on their feet so they're self-sufficient. The biggest recent news on this issue out of Texas is Governor Greg Abbott's move to reject the resettlement of new refugees in Texas, and Catholic bishops have even come out to scold him over this decision. What are your thoughts on this cruel move? Yes, um, you know, that was definitely disheartening to hear, especially because Texas is the largest state in the United States to resettle refugees. Um, 
historically, it's sad to see the numbers dwindling each year um, going down. Obviously, we've been approved to have 30,000 refugees this year. So um, we were excited to receive any refugees, of course, and then very disheartened and um, frustrated to hear about um, Greg Abbott's decision. Um, We got to work with a lot of Catholics. Our Houston Consortium got together. And it's really not even a matter of Republican versus Democratic. It's not a matter of religion or, um, you know, specifics there. It's really just welcoming those who are in need. And I think that's just based on morality. I think that, you, you know, everybody should care about helping those who are in need and who are struggling at the moment and I think it's very sad that Greg Abbott decided to obviously not let Texas welcome refugees and um in his statement he did say that we need to focus on the people who are here in the area I know that he's very concerned about the homeless and the refugees that we already have um but we are ready and waiting and we would you know obviously love to receive more refugees here as well and we can help those who we have here and receive more people as well so what's the latest news on Abbott's decision? I heard that there was a federal judge blocking a Trump uh, administration executive order that allowed Abbott and other states to turn away refugees in the first place. That is very correct, and we are very excited about that. Um, so we did get the injunction, basically stating that it's unethical to have um, the states decide on if we do get to resettle refugees or not. Um, so we are very much looking forward to that because it basically... Um, you know, voids Abbott's decision if everything does go through. So we are being positive right now. We are still receiving refugees. Um, If everything did go into effect, uh, you know, worst case scenario, this doesn't go through and Abbott's decision does um, remain final, then we would still receive refugees in Texas until June of this year as well. So trying to be positive, um, helping those refugees that are arriving. We have arrivals this week. We have arrivals next week. So we are focusing on those people who are here and those people who are coming and trying to get as many people over here before then as well. Right. And speaking of these refugees, I mean, who are they? You know, where do, why are they refugees? And, and just kind of giving a better understanding about what their story is and why they're arriving in Texas. Yeah, I do want to clarify. Um, I think that Abbott himself is a little confused on the definition of a refugee. Um, I think he's thinking more of illegals, but refugees are um, people from other countries who go through an extensive background check um, process. On average, it takes about two years um, to become vetted as a refugee to receive um, a notification that you get to be resettled. Um, So these are people who are healthy, who have no background, um, you know, who have clear backgrounds who are most likely reuniting with families over here as well. Um, So it's not that they're just arriving, they're planned arrivals, and um, it's not where a lot of politicians think that refugees and asylum seekers or illegals are the same thing, Um, often the term aliens used. And it's very sad because these people are vetted um, people who come over here to make a new life Um, They're fleeing persecution. A lot of times it's for political persecution if they speak out against somebody in their country um, or even religious persecution. Um, It does happen quite a bit and it's very sad. Families are split. Um, There's wars going on in different countries. So they 
are coming over here to take their families and um, come to a safe place. And I think um, a really good question to ask people who are very hesitant about refugee resettlement is, if you and your family were being persecuted for your religious or political beliefs and you know possibly could be killed, would you not grab your family and go to a different country to save their lives as well? So um, in this last year, we've had mostly from um, Afghanistan, Venezuela, the Congo, um, we have Burmese, we have people from all over. So they're very educated people for the most part who really want to give back to the community as well. Uh, another problem as it relates to refugees in Texas is human trafficking. Mm-hmm. What are some helpful policy solutions Texas lawmakers and local governments should be looking at? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, human trafficking is a big issue, not just in the United States, but definitely in Houston. Um, there's a myth that goes around that Houston is, you know, the largest traffic city, but it's not true. Um, the reason why a lot of people think that is because um, we do have very good task force and um, HPD and attorneys and uh, our human trafficking awareness task force who um, really steps up and cracks down on human trafficking. So obviously there's going to be more reports of it if we are catching it and making it aware. Um, but then again, we do have, you know, two, we have two international airports in Houston. It's a huge city. People come here for sports games. They come here for layovers. They come here for everything. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people, I, I, I think human trafficking is definitely an issue. And a lot of people think that um, refugees have to do with an increase in human trafficking where refugees not so much maybe even like asylum seekers people who come here or even come over and um and are you know picked up from mexico and driven over the border that's where the human trafficking um definitely shows up more um but it is an issue that the mayor that everybody here in texas and um i think Greg Abbott, even he he knows that trafficking is an issue and something that we're focusing on. So there's just so much uh, misinformation about refugees, and a lot of this uh, works to portray them as something as people that drain on the economy and the social services of this country. Uh, what are the facts about this? Yeah, it makes me really sad to see that um, that people think um, there's also this perception of. They're taking our jobs or, you know, they're not hard workers. Um, I think it's the opposite. Um, If you look at statistics about crime rates in areas where refugees are resettled, it actually, the the crime rates are lower. Um, The increased amount of jobs there too. And they're, you know, they're taking the very difficult, uh, hardworking warehouse jobs. They're taking those low paying jobs um, to make sure because they, you know, maybe they have a great education, but it's not accepted here in the United States. So they have to start their entire lives over. And they do. They're very hard workers. Um, and they love giving back to the state of Texas and to the United States. They're very proud that they came over as a refugee and they're proud of their status. Uh, when they come here, I, I had um, a 21-year-old client who came here by himself with one bag in his hand. He didn't know anybody in Houston. Um, Really great guy, but the first thing he said to us in the office was, 
my country told me I needed to sign up to be a part of America's army or else I would get in big trouble and get kicked out. And I think it was kind of sad that the first thing he thought about coming over here was obviously, you know, signing up. <laughs> obviously we did, but it's just sad that he thought he would come over here and get kicked out and he has to be a part of, you know, America's army and all these things. So in, you know, selective service, but uh, he is now, um, he's got his forklift license. He did some vocational training. He's working hard. He has a savings account. He saved up his money. Um, to buy a car. He just arrived last July as well. So not even in a year, he, I mean, his life has totally changed. He's in a safe place. He FaceTimes um, his friends throughout the country and um, he calls his mom on the phone back in Sudan and tells her that someday he hopes that um, her and his siblings will be able to come over to the United States. So it's, it's very heartbreaking. He said the last time he talked to her uh, she asked him will I ever see you again and um, you know these are the the people that we have coming over here and they want to have their families over here in a safe place they don't know if they're ever going to see them again and lowering our numbers to receive refugees and saying that Texas can't resettle refugees um, could stop that from happening for him so it's a very sad story um, but you know, and also a lot of refugees, maybe they'll go to Louisiana or some place nearby, but they will bus over here to see their family and they will move here to Houston and we just won't have funding for them. So that's really disappointing as well because people are going to come and um, they're going to want to be with their families, but we're not going to have the funding and um, just case management and, and emotional resources for them to survive and thrive. And as you said, it, this is a completely legal and, and vetted process. Um, and I think what you said is interesting about how they're going to move to Texas anyway, but we just won't have access to that federal funding to help them along. So right. it's not necessarily stopping. You know, Abbott's point of this is is to stop refugees from coming, but it seems like. No. And obviously, you know, everybody else has in the United States, which I'm very glad about, all the other states have welcomed refugees with open arms, said, yes, we're, we want to go ahead and resettle them. And um, when the biggest state to receive refugees in the past few years is saying no, what's really going to happen, like I explained, is they will come over here no matter what. So he's not stopping them. They have legal status. They're allowed to be here. Um, they won't receive um, as much financial support if they decide to move and relocate if we don't have um, just financial backing for them and that and this isn't a, a huge amount of funds it's you know barely enough to get them by so it's a lot of people think that we're just shoving dollars to them and helping people who are coming here and um, just taking people's taxes but it's very it's not true at all um, the amounts you know barely get them by they have to get a, a job within three months and typically all of them do um, so they get out there and they work hard and um, they're a huge part of our community and they really do give back and I think Houston um, a lot of people really do like Houston they say it's welcoming they say that there's so many good restaurants here there's so many different cultures and so diverse um, I think that's not just because of local Texans. I think it's because of the refugees who have been resettled here and the amazing different 
cultures that you get to experience and different cuisines too. So, Well, Kirsten, that's all for now. Thanks so much for joining us today and, and I appreciate your thoughtful answers. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it and um, appreciate you and, and you guys supporting refugees and everything that we do. You may have heard about the upcoming battle in 2020 for control of the Texas legislature. What do you know about Texas State House elections? What will it take for Democrats to flip the Texas House? And why should you care so much? Welcome to House Cleaning, a new segment where we will focus on a Texas State House district targeted for Democratic pickup every week. This week, we are looking at House District 112 in Northeast Dallas County. The district includes Garland and Richardson and is one of just two remaining Republican-held districts in the county. It will be a key battleground in the fight for control of the Texas House. With a population according to the last census of 167,000 people, the district was already majority-minority 10 years ago, and those trends have almost certainly continued. The majority of the residents are Black, Hispanic, and there is a sizable Asian-American population as well. The current representative of District 112 is Angie Chen Button, a Republican who's held the seat for a decade. Button has consistently received high ratings from far-right organizations, including the Texas Eagle Forum, Texas Values in Action, the American Conservative Union, and the NRA. Button is facing a rematch this year against her 2018 Democratic opponent, Brandy Chambers, who lost to Chen Button by just two points. That's only 1,100 votes. This is one of the most highly contested seats in North Texas. Hillary Clinton narrowly edged out Donald Trump by 1.2 points in 2016, while Beto O'Rourke carried House District 112 by almost 10 points in the 2018 midterm election. Meanwhile, Democratic challenger Brandy Chambers is running unopposed in the March 3rd primary. An attorney for more than 20 years, Chambers has championed issues including public education and expanding access to health care, as well as climate change, criminal justice reform, and fighting human trafficking. Check back in next week for a new installment of House Cleaning from the Texas Signal. Thank you for listening to The Texas Signal. The podcast was edited by Sarah Thugvi. To find out more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at thetexassignal.com.